0: Of Zephaniah. <clears throat> Zephaniah basically summarizes the judgment in the twelve, just like Micah summarizes sin. Okay, what am I talking about? I'm talking about how in Paul House's book, your textbook, he talks about the twelve, and he said, and he talks about how. Um, let's see if I get this right. The first six um, demonstrate the sin. The next three we're looking at today, demonstrate the judgment, and then the last three demonstrate that future hope. You remember what I'm talking about? How the 12 as a whole? And so, this is, is the third of this middle three group that we just did today. So, next week, we will do the last three of the 12, and so we should anticipate there'll be a lot of talk about the future hope. Now, there's judgment in there, too, I'll, just, I'll guarantee you that, um, but there's this extra emphasis um, that's in there as well. Alright. So, Zephaniah. His name means Yahweh has hidden him. He is the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Now, this has caused a little bit of speculation and um, debate about is this the same that we know from scripture, the King Hezekiah, right? So um, maybe the great, great grandson of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. If so, he's part of the royal family. Gleason Archer says no, he's not. Um, Gleason Archer is another one of these uh, kind of super scholars, like proficient in like 12 different languages and all this type of stuff. He argues that the study out the timeline, there's not enough time in there, and so, no go. But, you may see that, some people may see, and when you look at it, you're like, oh, Hezekiah? Really? He's related. So, the other thing that we have to recognize is that um, all the names of Scripture, pretty much, there's many people that had those names. And so, we read and we were like, oh, that's the only Hezekiah I know. Well, <laughs> well it's not the only Hezekiah they knew, you know what I mean? Lots of people named their kids Hezekiah, probably also linked to the reign of josiah so probably a resident of jerusalem in the southern kingdom all right uh, concerning the date and verse one it says the word of the lord that came to zephaniah son of cushy son of Gedaliah, son of amariah son of hezekiah in the days of josiah son of ammon king of judah so it's got to be during what time period Jude? time period of josiah right during the days of josiah So probably the early part, before the revival of 621 B.C., is what what scholars tend to think. According to the superscription, again, Zephaniah prophesied during that time, which 640 to 609. Now the problem is that's, that's a pretty big stretch, right? So if you're trying to narrow it down, how do you do that? The date can probably be narrowed further by noting that the destruction of Nineveh is seen as future in 213. Since Nineveh was destroyed in 6.12, Zephaniah would have been written before that. Now, have you noticed today, it's easy to get all this stuff confused, okay? Both for me as putting it together, especially since normally when I make these PowerPoints, I I don't necessarily do a whole book and then go to the next one. So, I'm actually surprised I haven't made more errors. Um, I'll do, like, the intro material on all three at once. Because I'm working out of the same resources. And so, yeah, it can get confusing. Like, wait, which book was that? Which book was that? So these three in particular, they all have a relationship with uh, Josiah, with Nineveh, with Babylon. And so they all kind of fit together. So the day can probably be narrowed further by noting that the destruction of Nineveh is seen as future in 2.13. Since Nineveh was destroyed in 6.12, Zephaniah would have been written before that. Another key to dating it is the institution of Josiah's religious reforms, around 622, which, among other things, addressed the issue of idolatry. Some argue that since Zephaniah does not mention the reforms, and since there are frequent references to idolatry in the book, Zephaniah must have prophesied before the reforms. However, those facts could also be explained in other ways, and it seems best not to draw too firm of a conclusion either way. So, somewhere between 640 and 612. So you got like a 30-year window that, that could have occurred during. The timeline, what's going on? Very similar. All three are very similar because we're talking about the same time period, right? So you expect to, to see Babylon in here, right? Yep, there you go. Babylon conquered 586, right? So Josiah's reign, 640 to 609. So from here all the way down to here, Josiah's reigning. Jeremiah starts here. The Book of the Law is discovered with Josiah. That sparks the reforms, right? So the people that say it was probably before the reforms, so they would say it would occur in here, all right? Pharaoh Nico kills Josiah in battle over here, so that's the end of Josiah. So it's got to be between here and here, and a lot of people would put it in between here, all right? Our world powers timeline again, so we already know we're right in here. Right. All right, what are the key places that are going to show up in, in here? Well, Nineveh's way over there, but other than that, we're much closer to home this time. Right? Ammon, Moab, Philistia, the Philistines, and Jerusalem right there to the west of the Dead Sea. So looking at the historical context, you see 2 Chronicles 33 to 35 and 2 Kings 21. That'll give you some background material on what's going on in the book. It's written to the southern kingdom of Judah. The evil reigns of Manasseh and Ammon were not fully reversed by Josiah. So if you look at the dates here, all right, um, Manasseh, Manasseh was the baddest dude. Evil. And he he had a long reign. I think it was something like 50 or 55 years. So that that was probably probably supposed to be like 89 or something. Um, I don't remember the exact date. But it's not 639. Um, And then Ammon or after him. Well, Josiah's reforms, even though Josiah reigned a long time, remember he started out as a kid, right? So part of that reigning was not really a king. You know, one of the priests, etc., cetera, were, were ruling, right? So, at this time period, from 626 to 612, the Assyrian dominance is declining. The, the The Assyrian power is decreasing. He has implemented some reforms, but it hasn't completely reversed all the evil that Manasseh and Ammon have done. Um, it's very hard to undo Something once it's been started, including especially evil. The Neo Babylonian Empire is increasing, and Judah's independent and and doing well at this point. All right, at least from their perspective, right? That's why it's in uh, quotation marks. Okay, God doesn't quite think so. The. There we go. All right, so. As part of Josiah's reforms, okay, um, the book being found, trying to get the people to be right with God again, bringing back the, the proper way and usages of, uh, of the rituals that God had set up, and using his his influence and his power to try to reform the people. Um, it reminds me also of uh, when the people came back out of exile. Uh, one of the things they did was to rebuild the temple, and then to re, uh, rebuild or reform the people's hearts so they would be spiritually right to worship in the temple. And then Nehemiah came afterwards and did the walls so to protect the city, right? So these are the aspects, the temple, inner worship, and then the walls. So we see here Josiah is also trying to work on getting the people's heart right again um, in the, the context and the time period. So the timeline that we also just saw a minute ago puts the book back in here. And so, we're looking at Zephaniah, <clears throat> and we're talking, so if we had done these in order, right, these three books, and now we did them in Bible order, canonical order, right? We didn't do them in chronological order. So, if we did them in chronological order, it's best we could figure, right? Then, we would have done Nahum, and then Zephaniah, right? And then, Habakkuk would have been theological context and themes Okay, one of the themes that we see is the sovereignty of God um, this is soon going to be demonstrated on Judah itself that God is in control that, that God will send in judgment uh, the other theme is the judgment the day of the Lord on Judah and the nations um, retribution is coming repent today there's restoration in the future there's always that future hope after, after the fact, okay? And so, in the book of Zephaniah, these are some of the, the themes. Additionally, uh, Melhau puts puts the chart together like this. Um, because the day of the Lord is coming, all right, there's wrath and trouble and destruction, all of this, both for Judah and the nations. And so, what's it going to do? Punishment and repentance. Okay, that's that's the goal of this. So the day of the Lord is a pretty hefty uh, theme that we'll want to keep in mind. All right. Some link to the other prophets. Okay. Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Lamentations, as we, we saw earlier. Um, before the fall, just before the fall, and then after the fall. So just continue to kind of keep that fresh. These three books can get confusing. They swirling around in your head. In the New Testament, we got four passages that are repeated in Matthew, Hebrews, Revelation, and Revelation again. And 1-3, 18 3-8, and 3-13 are, are the four passages there. So, again, I just give them to you for uh, your benefit for the future. Also, all of these are, again, given for you to just see the literary masterpiece of, of what these prophets do. And then also for your own uh, study in the future. Um, just a resource for you. So, you can see, again... There is a, a large number of, of a variety of rhetorical and literary devices that are used um, by the prophet in the passage here. All right. <coughs> now, this chart, um, Richard Patterson, I believe, made this up also. This is in a, a journal article, I think Grace Theological Journal it was in. And so here he's got at the top, name Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, and he has listed here for you the different types of of literary forms or rhetorical devices. And if you look down this list, you can, you can see how they all use a lot of them, all right? But uh, I definitely seems to use uh, at least as many, if not more, than the others. But all three of them are filled with these rhetorical devices uh, that are used. So let me make another hermeneutical comment on that. So if we don't understand rhetorical devices and how they're used, are we gonna understand what they're saying? No, we're not. We will not understand what's going on. And so uh, that behooves it to up for us that, that not only do you need to you know, learn everything you can about all the stuff that you're learning here. And, you, and in hermeneutics class, um, when you take that, if you haven't already taken it, you'll learn some of this stuff. But even in there, you probably will not um, study each one of these rhetorical devices. This is why you, you really need reference books, or at least the internet, right? so you can look these stuff up and figure out what's going on. And this is another reason why you need people who um, are scholars in a particular book because they can point out to you where these are, and then you can go look. And, I mean, you're always free to disagree with a scholar, right? Um, they're not infallible, so you don't have to agree with them. But there usually is somebody that has spent gobs and gobs of time uh, in the book, in the Hebrew of the book, and so they have noticed or someone else noticed and showed them these rhetorical devices which can help you in interpreting the book some key words in Zephaniah day occurs 21 times what do you think it's related to day of the Lord near is 10 times gather earth and name are 5 times each judge is 4 times punish or visit and gather or assemble I don't know what an assembly is um, are three times each. And Patterson indicates that Zephaniah appears to be dependent upon the phraseology of Deuteronomy um, in Zephaniah 1, uh, thirteen. And so there, when we get to that passage, uh, we'll see if I remember, and we'll try to uh, see what he's saying and why he's uh, connecting So a, a quick outline for you is days of judgment and days of joy. Judgment against Judah, judgment against the nations, and then the future restoration. And you can kind of see that it does not neatly break into chapters 1, 2, and 3, but it's close. So you, you can ballpark figure it to help you out. Um, you know Judgment against Judah, judgment against the nations in Jerusalem, and then you know joy. So you also have the idea that you could just uh, cut it in half, and you've got... Uh, retribution up to through 338 and then restoration. okay? Uh, there's also a little bit of a debate about 3 eight. Does 3 eight go over here? or does 3 eight go over here? So you can see in this chart it, it's listed as the exhortation which matches up with chapter two, one to three right here. Um, and the response of the righteous is, is marked down here for you. Uh, but some people do have 3A over here going with that unit, 3 to 10. And so uh, this next one might actually have it. Yeah, so right here, Dorsey, um, as I mentioned him earlier, that's the litera- literary analysis, uh, he has 8 through 20, not 9 through 20. So he does not break it at the same place right here that he does. Now, two, one, and three, he has there as the exhortation. And two, one to three, he's out of the middle of his chiasm. And so let me just go back and highlight that again for you. So here, two, one to three is the matching exhortation to three eight. Okay? But see, in Dorsey's scheme structure, once 3-8 is taken out of attached to there, and it's its own separate, this is the hinge on which the chiasm moves. Well, since it's the hinge on which the chiasm moves, well, then you no longer are going to have a parallel part, right? Because this is the hinge part. And so verse 8 ends up being pushed over here as part of 9 to 10, uh, which he doesn't have it broken down that much anyways. he has 3, 8 to 20. So why am I going through all that? Well, obviously it makes a difference on your structure here, but it's more than that you teach or preach a passage, you have to wrestle with that. Does this verse go with this portion or with this portion? Uh, because most of the time, now these books are smaller, you could probably preach the whole thing, but mo- I mean, most people don't preach or teach the whole book, most people preach or teach a portion or a passage of the book, right? And you don't really want to, I, I don't think most of the time, get in the habit of like cutting a paragraph or a sentence or a thought in half. And that's what this is about. It's about the thought. Does it go with the previous thought or the next thought? And you won't always know. Some, you know, sometimes there is, you know, just a lot of debate. Which way does it go? And it's not just the Old Testament. The same thing happens in the New Testament. Does it go with that verse or, or that verse? Uh, this structure here is is from Richard Patterson, and so he's the guy I've mentioned about three different times today. He's done a lot of work in the Minor Prophets, obviously, um, and so. He breaks the book very simply down into two parts, Declaration of the Day of the Judgment, and details about the, the Lord's judgment. And then you can see, as you go through the section right here, the pronouncements here on the nations, on Jerusalem, an exhortation in 3.8, teachings, uh, information, and instruction. All right, And over here, the pronouncements on the earth, Judah, Jerusalem, exhortation, teaching, information, and instruction. And so, there's a, there's a matching up. He, he matches uh, cutting off here with the woes, um, the the day of the Lord here, and then nation, um, the nations and nations' people are, are right there. So, uh, again, these aren't so much to confuse you or to give you two more. I mean, I can give you 55 more outlines, but um, eventually they're just tiresome to work through. But you really need a couple, unless you've done your own outline, and even then you should compare it with someone else. Um you you need a few to compare and to get started so you can see uh, where the problems are. One of the one of the things that's showing several outlines is that it shows you where where the problem passages are. It's wherever they disagree. I mean where everybody agrees, like well there's no problem, right? That's what the the obvious uh, structure is. <coughs> All right. So one, two to three. Let's look at this. All right? I've also relied to some degree on uh, Gary Schnitzer. Uh, I believe that's how you say his name. S-C-H-N-I-T-T-J-E-R. He wrote the book uh, that I've mentioned before also, The Torah Story, published by Zondervan, Phenomenal book. And he is uh, very big on dealing with intertextuality, how uh, different books connect with each other. And So, in chapter one, after the uh, superscription of, of verse 1, you have starting in verse 2. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Now, you can also say there's another connection with our, our prophetic books this morning. It sounds like what we just read earlier, like God's ticked off, right? He's going to wipe everything out. I will sweep away man and animal. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. And the ruins, along with the wicked, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. The Lord's declaration. And so, in verse 2 and 3, a snitcher season here, a little bit of a reversal or an anti-creation. So, if you remember in creation, the, the days of creation, who was created last? Man was. And right before man was the animals, right? Okay? And so, right before that was the the birds and the so if you look at this, you see that instead of in creation, so creation is birds and fish, animals, man. Here it's man, then animals, then birds and fish, right? And so there's an uncreation, an anti-creation, a reversal of what takes place in Genesis 1 and 2. So the thematic scope of the judgment is set in 1, 2 to 3. The creator will anti-create, uncreate, etc., reverse-create they rebellious nations, beginning with his own people. So the order of creation, fish, birds, animals, humans, is reversed. You can also compare Jeremiah and Hosea. I will utterly sweep off everything. Okay, so then we pick up with the next section, okay? Verse numbers four. and five. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. Remember, stretch out my hand, what does that mean? Metaphorical usage for what? I'm going to smite him, right? Yeah. Smack him. Stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every vestige of Baal. The names of the pagan priests along with the priests. Those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the heavenly host. Those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. Those who turn back from following the Lord, who don't seek the Lord or inquire of him. And so here we have... This aspect that there's disaster for Judah and Jerusalem. Alright? Look at verse 7. First phrase. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Now this is a little crazy. He has consecrated his guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials of the king's son and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold and fill their master's house with violence and deceit. On that day, the Lord's declaration, there will be an outcry from the fish gate, wailing, loud cra- crashing, wail, blah, blah, blah. Verse 11, you will, or they will be silenced. In verse 12, at that time. So what are a couple of things that we see right here in this passage? 1, 4 to 2, 3. There's disaster for Judah and Jerusalem. It says, be silent." We've we've had that earlier today already. You say, you be silent in my presence, okay? And then, be sacrifice. I'm not preaching this. I'm not saying you be a sacrifice. I'm saying, God is saying, you're going to be my sacrifice. So, you go around sacrificing all the time, right? You're going to be the sacrifice, all right? He's turning the tables on them. They will be the sacrifice. The day, it's ten times in chapter 1, verse 14 to 18. That's four verses. It's used ten times. It's interestingly also used ten times in Obadiah, 11 to 14. Anybody remember what Obadiah is a prophecy against? One of the neighbors. Edom. It's a prophecy against Edom. So... Day of Judgment is used ten times in four verses against the Edomites. And here it's used ten times in verses 14 to 18. But this time it's not against the Edomites. It's against God's own people. So what do you see here again? You see that God's justice is applicable to both the pagan and And then the word seek is in here multiple times. We didn't get to it yet. So back to the text. Verse 14. The great day of the Lord again. Then he says, Listen again, the day of the Lord. And then the day of wrath. And then in in 15. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. A day of trumpet blasts and battle cries. I will bring distress on mankind. Continues on. You get to chapter 2 yourselves together, gather together, undesirable nation, before the decree take effect, and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes, before the day of the Lord, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed in the day of the Lord's anger. So this is a call of repentance. Okay? Even though the judgment is coming, even though the day is near at hand, okay? Near was used multiple times in the book, right? Seek God out. Repent. Turn back to God. And so, that's that last part that's mentioned in this section of of the book. Humility is the benchmark in God's kingdom. Isaiah 66, 1-2. What's Isaiah 66, 1-2 say? Isaiah says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, what house could you possibly build for me what place could be my home, my hand made all these things and so they all came into being this is the Lord's declaration I will look favorably on this kind of person one who is humble, submissive in spirit and who trembles at my word now that's also similar to Micah, right, 6-8 right, so humility so bring yourself to repentance, humble yourself Right. Seek out God's face, he says. And gather yourselves together. Gather together the undesirable nations. Okay, This is a phrase that, that we're going to see uh, come back up before the decree. And the day passes. Okay, We've already, I've read these. Now I have some of them on, on the screen here. but The seek, again, the repentance language all right, that's in that verse. The next section, okay, picks up in verse 4 with judgment, all right? With 4, Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Those are um, Philistine territories. Woe, inhabitants of the seacoast, nation of the kerathites The word of the Lord is against you. Canaan, land of the Philistines, I will destroy you until there is no one left will become pasture lands and caves for shepherds and folds for sheep. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture. They will lie down in the evening among the house of Ashkelon. For the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunting of Moab the insults of the Ammonites who have taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live, declaration of the Lord, Moab will be like Sodom. What happened to Sodom? Torched, right? Ammonites like Gomorrah. What happened to Gomorrah? Torched. A place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, and a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. So there's some reversal here. God's people is going to then plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. This is what they get for their pride. What's the what's the problem? The problem is their pride. What we just see in the repentance section. You need humility, right? The Lord will be terrifying to them when He starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coastlines of the nation will bow and worship. You Cushites will also be slain by my sword. Thirteen, he'll stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Syria. He'll make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as a desert. Fifteen, this is the self-assured city that lives in security. All right, so 2, 4 to 15, the disaster for the nations. Okay, Felicia, the Cretans, they, they might be mercenaries from Crete. Okay, that's possibly where they are. Okay, Moab, Ammon. Judah is going to inhabit those nations. So they will be judged, and then uh, they will become inhabited uh, by the very people that used to be oppressed by them. All right. Then um, Ethiopia in 2.12, and Assyria in 2.13 to 15. It continues on then in chapter 3. first five verses are against the the city of God, and then against the nations in 6 through 8. So, what word does chapter 3 begin with? Woe. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled. The oppressive city. She's not obeyed, not accepted discipline, not trusted the Lord, not drawn near to God. The princess within her are roaring lions, her judges are wolves of the night which leaves nothing for the morning. Roaring lions, what is that? They're after prey. Lions roar when they're on the hunt, when they're taking down prey. So they're predatory. The same as the wolves. The judges are the wolves of the night. Predators at night, predators throughout the city. What are the judges of verse 3 supposed to do? What are the princes, the rulers, supposed to do? They're supposed to rule with justice and righteousness. Prophets are also reckless. So in verse 3, the princes, the judges. In verse 4, the prophets are reckless. They're treacherous. In verse 4, also the priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. So the whole leadership. In verse 5, the righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fail, fail at dawn. Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame verse 6, he cuts off the nations, their corner towers are destroyed, I've laid waste their streets with no one to pass through verse 7, I thought you will certainly fear me and accept correction and her dwelling place would not be cut off, based on all that I had given her, however they became more corrupt in all their actions, therefore wait for me, until the day I rise up in, for plunder so, God had thought, you know that's an anthropomorphism, right so, I figured that after I figured that you would be faithful to me and be loyal to me, but no, you didn't. So, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, in order to pour out my indignation on them, all my burning anger, for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. So, we're not gathering for a big party, unless it's a burn party. Right? They're gathered for destruction. God is gathering them. First the city of God, and then the nation. Verse seven that I have already mentioned to you is highlighted also up on the screen now. That I thought that you would fear me, but of course, they did not fear them, and therefore, as we mentioned in verse eight, the decision to gather the nations for a judgment. So the last portion of the book now whether it starts in eight or nine debate about that right. So the last portion of the book. It's a promise of salvation. Verse 9 says, I will then restore pure speech to the people so that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh and serve him with a single purpose. So instead of serve their idols, they'll serve God. They'll have clean speech. It's a day of hope. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. So now we're going to have a real offering." on that day you will not be put to shame because of everything you've done in rebelling against me for then I will remove your boastful braggarts from among you and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain I will leave a meek and a humble people among you and they will trust in the name of Yahweh so before he said you were not trusting in my name but now afterwards you will trust that's a day of hope for the nations it's a day of salvation for the people of God in 12 to 20 Note the connections between salvation and, and the prior judgment oracles. Uh, the word humble, humility, in 2-3, 3-12, and then three nineteen it goes back and forth. Okay, You're not humble, now you will be humble. Remnant in 2-7 and 9, and then in three thirteen. Restore in 2-7 and three twenty. So when we're saying the salvation oracles, that's the part we're talking about right now. There's 3-9-20. That's the salvation and the hope. So the judgment oracles was these other ones, the ones that are primarily in chapter 2, that are listed there for you. <clears throat> for verse 9 in particular, the idea that God is going to restore pure speech so they may call on the name of Yahweh. What does call on the name of Yahweh mean? It means worship Him. In Genesis, it said that Enoch, in chapter 5, with the idea of worshiping God. and why is that pointed out? because the others were not. so he's the contrast. He's worshiping after God and serve him with a single purpose, a single purpose. We often talk about having an undivided heart right or a single heart a heart devoted completely to God. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, verses four through six or all the way to nine, but I think four to six uh, deals with this in particularly as, as well. The, the single focus, the single purpose, the single mindedness that's in there. So that's the 3 9. Then in 3, um, three 11, uh to 20, there's actually a chiastic structure here. Uh, Jerusalem's shame is removed and it's reversed. Jerusalem is purified and populated by a remnant. Same thing, 18 and 19. Jerusalem is exhorted to rejoice over the Lord's salvation and exhorted to trust in the Lord's protection, Right, right in the middle. So salvation and protection are all wrapped up in the same thing. Um, Salvation, the word salvation, we talk about it almost exclusively on a spiritual level. But the word actually comes originally from a physical level. God will deliver his people. God will save his people. Um, Because you and I don't have anybody clamoring down our throats, we don't have any physical deliverance needed, right? Uh, But God's people did. And in the Old Testament and New Testament, so we almost think of it only in the spiritual sense, but you've got to realize, it's, it's both. And so, that's a, a chiastic structure that is in verses 11 to 20. In verse 11, you will not be put to shame because of everything you've done in rebelling against me, for I will remove your proud, arrogant people from among you, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. My holy mountain, Zion, Jerusalem, Uh, the place where God dwells, and so that's what he's referring to there, then he continues, now remember we talked about that gathering before, right, so here it says in verse 18, I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals, and they will be a tribute from you, and a reproach on her, in verse 18, yes, he says in 19, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you, I will save the lame and gather the scattered. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time I will bring you back. Yes, at that time I will gather you. I will make you famous and praiseworthy among all the people of the earth, which, uh, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, Yahweh has spoken. And so you have the the reversal that takes place at the end and God gathering them back. So there's this idea of, of shame and the reversal of shame that he talks about. And the book of Zephaniah, the book of Hebrews, twelve two, when it talks about keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross, and did what? He despised the shame, and he sat down at the, the right hand of God's throne. And then in 1 John uh, 2, verse 28, we're told, So now little children remain in him, so that when he appears we may have boldness, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. This one is, is probably pretty critical for understanding the passage. Remain in him. Abide in him. Uh, stay faithful to God. That covenant faithfulness that has said from the Old Testament that you're faithful and you're loyal to the covenant is what God is exhorting and challenging. So in the New Testament, you actually have uh, the same type of exhortation to, to be faithful to God and to have this humility and not to be ashamed. Um, throughout the prophets, that one of the aspects of God's judgment is shame. That He would shame them. One of the aspects of the restoration and the future hope is He takes away their shame. I think it's Ed Welch. He's got a fantastic book called Shame Interrupted. Um, Ed Welch and, and some other guys, they write a lot of excellent material and counseling. And Shame Interrupted is one of those books. Uh, phenomenal about uh, shame, where it comes from, how it works in our life. And God interrupts that and can take that away. And just like in the prophets how he reverses that and brings the people back to himself. So, that's the book of Zephaniah. So, all three of them, Nehu, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, uh, together, these, these prophets that, uh, that summarize the judgment of God. So, Hosea, uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Uh, Those first six, they they summarize and and highlight the sin, and then the three that we looked at today, uh, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, summarize and focus the the judgment, and then the three that we'll look at uh, next week, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they will focus on and highlight this restoration theme, which... We've seen even at the end of these books today is is being lifted up. That's um, a common aspect throughout the Old Testament that we see the judgment and then the hope that comes after that. So that will uh, do it for our our minor prophets for.